Well, yeah, I'm like really excited to, to share this morning. Some weeks I'm like just itching to like share what I've got to share. And this morning I'm excited about it. Um, I'm also excited because my good friend Justin Berenger is here visiting with us today. If um, Justin has preached here at Embrace many times in the past. Um, he worked with me here for quite a few years. When I started here as the pastor of Embrace, Justin was the first one who was in leadership here at the church and at this church who came to me and said, I got your back, I'm here, I'll support you in whatever way you need, and I'm, I'm committed. And, and he, he sure enough was committed and helped us lead the gathering on Monday nights and provided a lot of support and care for many of you all and for me as a, as a pastor at this church. And um, I'm just grateful that he had a surprise visit today, uh, came, uh, came in yesterday and stayed the night with us. And so I'm excited to have him here. So make sure you say what's up to Justin. He's the, the guy with the big beard and the, and the shorts on. He's got his uh, Embrace uniform on today. Um, so uh, like I said last week, uh, we are embarking on a new and exciting and possibly dangerous journey together. It will be difficult. It will be long and maybe even life-changing. We are studying the book of Romans. If you're like me, uh, you may have history with the book of Romans. I know I do. Um, perhaps someone has taken you down the Romans road to salvation, or maybe you've done the same for somebody else, as I shared last week. I tried haphazardly to do at Ichthus Music Festival one year. Maybe you've resonated with some of the more popular and encouraging passages in Romans, like Romans 8.28 and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. It's a beautiful passage. I know some have experienced Romans used against them, kind of like a weapon. Many people have used Romans 1 to condemn and shame. People have used Romans 13 to denounce protesters and tell them that they need to submit to the authorities. Lots of people have history with Romans. Romans has been taught and debated and preached and studied probably more uh, than most books in the Bible. And to be honest, I've never really been quite satisfied with the way Romans has been presented to me. I remember uh, reading through uh, the Gospels um, when I was all different points in my life, I'm like, I'm going to read the whole New Testament. I'm going to start at the beginning. And I go Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Love the Gospels. So excited to read through those. Get to Acts, and like Acts is full of action. It's called Acts, right? It's all about action. There's a lot going on there. It's a life-changing book. And then I would get to Romans, and I would start reading through it. And I'm just, often I would just skip right over it. Because I'm like, I just don't, this is too complicated. I don't understand what Paul is talking about in Romans. And these arguments are are really not connecting with my spirit. And that's kind of how I felt. Um, it just didn't make sense to me. And so over the past few years at Embrace, our preaching team that we have here, we've intentionally tried to pick books of the Bible to preach on that we have not traditionally loved too much. Um, kind of those books of the Bible that often get neglected or overlooked. Uh, we did a series through First Peter uh, recently, and that's one that kind of tucked in the back of the New Testament. Uh, a lot of people avoid because it's got some hard passages in it. We did that book. We've done some other ones in the Bible that have not been easy. We even did a series on Lamentations a few years ago, which was a really uh, interesting 
book to dig into, but what I found is that when we take time to prayerfully study and consider these books of the Bible, that we start to understand them more, and then we start to appreciate them more. And so some of my favorite books in the Bible now are the ones that I often would avoid because I've taken the time to really dig into it. And so um, my hope is that we can do that together and that we come away from this uh, time in Romans feeling like we actually love the book. Uh, And some of you all may already love it, and that's great. Um, and, and hopefully those of you who don't will come away feeling like, man, this is a really powerful text, because it really is. You know, one of the main problems with reading Romans is one of our main problems with reading lots of the New Testament is we, we forget that Romans is a letter. Like, it is correspondence between a person who wrote it and a group of people who are receiving it. We often treat Romans kind of as a theological textbook that gives like this systematic theology or breakdown of of salvation and how we can get into heaven and avoid hell. That is not what Romans is. It's not this abstract in the clouds belief system about salvation. Romans was not originally written to all people in all places. It was written to a particular group of people who were living in Rome at that time. Specifically to about 200 or so Christians who met in about eight different house churches in the capital city of the empire, Rome. These churches were uh, diverse churches in many different ways. They were ethnically diverse, religiously, economically. Um, This group would have had men and women and children. Um, There would be slaves in these churches, potentially even masters who had kind of changed the way they were living. There would have been wealthy. There would have been poor folks. And my belief is that Paul wrote Romans to help this diverse young group of Christians Learn how to live together in peace and equality and unity. Romans is roughly structured like this, all right? So you have the first bulk of the book that's Romans chapter, chapters 1 through 11. And 1 through 11, if you've ever read through it, it's, it's a little hard to follow and track what's going on there. Romans 1 through 11 is a lot of theology. It's a lot of kind of conversation about the story of God and how salvation came into this world through the Israelites and then through Jesus. And, and a lot of people, when they start reading Romans, don't make it to the end. They don't even make it through 1 through 11 because they get through it. Maybe they make it all the way to 8, but then you get through 9 through 11, and it gets really confusing, and a lot of people just give up, and, and they don't make it to the end. And, and it really hinges, though, on Romans chapter 12, and there's a shift. And so you start this new section in Romans 12 through 16. And these chapters are more practical. All right, they're about actual stuff that was going on in these communities, conflicts and difficulties that they were facing in Rome. And the, the author and scholar Scott McKnight, who I've grown to really love over the years um, in his kind of take on the Bible, um, he's a brilliant New Testament scholar. But he wrote a book uh, that my friend Dustin uh, pointed me to. He, if you ever want to know a book or a podcast or anything, just talk to Dustin. He's got too many in his head, and he's listened and read them all. So just ask him, and he'll tell you a good book on any topic you're ever interested in. And so Dustin told me about this book, uh, Reading Romans Backwards. And it's a really fascinating book because what Scott McKnight argues is that if we want to truly understand Romans, we need to start at the end first. Now, those last few chapters, like I said, they help you have context about what was actually going on in the churches in Rome. And McKnight argues that we need to understand that 
before we can understand why Paul was making these theological arguments he was making in Romans 1 through 11. I believe that all theology is what I would call lived theology. It's not abstract. It's not disconnected from our actual lives that we live. Theology can't just be talked about in the universities and in the seminaries. In all the letters of the New Testament, the authors teach theology. They do. They teach beliefs about God and all this stuff. But they do it in order to impact the way we live and and live together and work together in this world in which we're living. Paul's arguments in Romans chapters through 11, 1 through 11, are meant to speak to the reality that the churches were facing in that moment. And to specifically, I believe, to address conflicts that were happening between these factions within the early church. We have factions within churches today, don't we? We've seen this. There's been church splits and all sorts of things that happen. They were facing a lot of that kind of thing in their world in the first century. And so Paul wanted them it seems, to be at peace with one another and work together for the common good. And so we're going to take McKnight's advice, and we're going to read Romans backwards. And so we're going to actually start at the end, and we're going to make our way to the beginning. Now, for some of you all, this might feel like a really, like, how on earth could you start at the end of a book? Like, you don't do that, right? Um, I think it's kind of exciting. You start at the end, and then you move forward. We're going to see how this goes. Um, But today, what we're going to do is we're going to start at the very end, chapter 16. All right, and if you want to open a Bible and look and see, chapter 16 is a little weird, as you're going to see, but I'm excited to get into this. This is often a part of the letter that is ignored, and there's a reason, because it's basically just a bunch of names. It's a bunch of greetings that Paul offers to a lot of people in these churches where he was writing this letter. And so I'm going to read it for you. I will likely mispronounce names, but you all won't know. As I was telling Justin, he's like, just do it confidently, and they won't know anything. I'm like, all right, so I'm going to try to read these names. There's a lot of them, um, but let's read through this. Romans 16, 1 through 16. These are real people in these house churches, all right? These are not just like, these are real life people in these churches that lived, and so just think about who these people might have been as I read through this. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Cancrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risk their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. There's one of the house churches we're talking about. Greet my dear friend, Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachys. Greet Apelles, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, the women who worked hard for the Lord. 
Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Greet Asynchronitus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philogus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the Lord's people who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. So this list of names doesn't get a whole lot of attention, yet I think we can learn a lot from this list of names, particularly about the context of Romans. Who are these people that Paul was writing this letter to? Here's a list of many of the names. And like I said, the early church in Rome was not that big. We're talking just a couple hundred people. And so this is a list of 29 of those folks. This is a pretty solid list of folks that were in that early church community. Like I said last week, there are Greek names, there are Roman names, there are Jewish names in this list. Some of the names actually are common slave names, which I always find so inspiring and wonderful about the gospel, that the gospel had a particular appeal to people who were marginalized and oppressed because they found something liberating in Jesus. There were many slaves who were part of the early church. Many of the names are women. And I want to focus the bulk of our time looking at the first name in chapter 16, which is a woman named Phoebe. Now, we have two verses that tell us some things about Phoebe. And perhaps these verses tell you more than you would think, honestly, because there's a lot in these two verses. So I'm going to read these two verses one more time. It says, I'll commend, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Cancrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Now, I just want to share some things about Phoebe with you all this morning because Phoebe, to me, is a very inspiring person in the New Testament. So what can we learn about Phoebe from these verses? So let's first look at her name, Phoebe. Phoebe is a name that comes from Greek mythology, which almost guarantees that Phoebe was a Gentile. It would be hard to imagine a Jew naming their daughter after the Greek gods, right? Because the Jews did not believe in the Greek gods. That would have not been something they would do. So Paul, a Jew, is naming and lifting up a Gentile woman at the start of this closing chapter. Paul also refers to her as a sister, now, in Rome, your status was determined by many factors, but one of the important ones was your family and your position within the family or the household. There are many instances that Paul refers to the church as the new family of God. However, in his family, the structure is very different. The family of God, there is no hierarchy. All are siblings. McKnight says this, and I love it. He says, with the term sister... Paul creates a new society of siblings, one designed to obliterate privilege and power as the ancients knew it. So the gospel is making everyone siblings and turning things upside down. Phoebe is a Gentile woman. She is a sister who is a sibling in Christ. But Paul also refers to Phoebe as a deacon. Now the Greek word deacon 
uh, for deacon is diakonos. And it's actually translated differently in different points throughout the New Testament. And different translations of the Bible will actually use different words for diakonos. Deacon is one. Also servant or minister are also a couple of other words. They're not always 100% sure how to use this particular term. Paul actually uses the word diakonos to describe himself and Jesus, all right? And so we often sometimes today think of deacons as just kind of support roles within the church. But in the New Testament, when the word deacon is used, it's often used in the context of church, and it's almost exclusively reserved for leaders in the early church. And so Phoebe is most likely in the role of a leader. Phoebe is described as a leader in the church in a town called Cancrea. It was a port city that was near Corinth, a very important city in that world. And Paul was actually writing his letter from Corinth, so him and Phoebe were probably close. They knew one another because they lived close to one another. So Phoebe is a Gentile, she is a sister, and she is a leader in the church in the important city of Cancrea. She is also described as a benefactor or a patron. Now in the Roman world, we've talked about this many times, Christina has taught us about the way the Roman world was organized with benefactors, and you had kind of clients that the patrons would, would give money to to try to help. In the Roman world, the term benefactor was used often, and it was well understood. Society was structured through these patron-client relationships. And so what would happen is people with wealth would share some of their wealth with the poor, but there would always be strings attached. It was in, in exchange for praise and honor and respect. And Phoebe is described as a benefactor to many. And I imagine she was a different type of benefactor than many in that time. She was a woman with wealth and respect, but someone who shared her wealth with the early church, including Paul himself. Now, it's interesting because Paul in other parts of the New Testament says, I will not take money from you. There's certain people Paul would not take money from. Y'all may be in this situation in your own life. If someone wants to give you money, but you know there's always strings attached to it, and you're like, I'm not taking money from that person because they're going to they're gonna let me have it later on. I'm not going to be indebted to them. Paul actually said this about certain people, that I'm not going to take money from you because I don't want to be indebted to you. And so for him to take money from Phoebe and to allow her to share with him would mean that he had great trust and respect for Phoebe. So Phoebe was a Gentile, a sister, a leader in the church, and also a benefactor. And here's a really cool and a really fascinating part of all of this. It says that Paul commends Phoebe to the churches in Rome and also asks them to receive her in the Lord and to help her with anything she might need. This language that Paul's using of commendation, of receiving her, this was the kind of language that was used to describe kind of how an official envoy would come into a city and how they were supposed to be received in a certain way. It's kind of like if the president of the United States couldn't travel to a country, and so our president has ambassadors, right, that he sends to different places. And those ambassadors are really meant to represent the president in those places because the president can't always be there. And so if the president is sending an ambassador to a certain place, they are going to expect that those people receive the ambassador as if the president was there 
himself. And so this is the kind of language that's being used. Paul is expecting these churches to receive Phoebe as if Paul was there himself. And he trusted her enough to do that. Paul basically was appointing Phoebe as his representative in Rome. She went to Rome in Paul's place. Her main task would have been to carry the letter that we call Romans to all these house churches in Rome. Now, this would have been a very important job. They didn't have a postal service in the ancient world for private citizens, all right? And so if you wanted to deliver a letter to someone, you had to take it yourself or you had to ask somebody else to deliver it for you. And now this is a job that is actually a really high level of responsibility because often letters were very important documents and would have very important information. They couldn't pick, pick up a phone and call somebody. This would be very important stuff. And there's actually writings during that time where people are lamenting how they can't find trustworthy people to deliver their letters because they're basically saying they always kind of open them up and read them. There's no, like, we can't find people we can trust to do this job. And so Paul found someone that he felt like he could trust, and it was Phoebe. He clearly spent a lot of time on this letter of Romans, as you can see as you read it. It's, it's the longest of his letters. It's a very lot of stuff going on. And so he wanted to make sure, I'm sure I, I imagine, that, that this letter got to Rome safely. And Phoebe was the person that he trusted. Now, not only would Phoebe have carried the letter to Rome, but she would have likely been the one to read the letter aloud to these house churches. They would have welcomed her. Imagine this, all right? Picture this. They're inviting her into their homes, all right, into their house churches, and she would have been sitting among them, and she would have read the letter as if she were Paul himself. This letter was so important to Paul that there is a good chance that she would have been involved in actually crafting the letter. There's a chance she could have been involved in even writing the letter and certainly would have practiced delivering the letter. Letter writing was not really done alone in the ancient world. You would have other folks involved in that process. And I imagine Paul would have wanted to make sure Phoebe understood his letter really, really well and that she knew his arguments and that she could read the letter in a compelling and engaging manner. And so you can imagine Phoebe sitting in a small house performing Paul's letter to a group of 25 or so people. Homes in the ancient world were not so private as they are today. People did business out of their homes. There was, they were kind of often very open to the outside. They were all very close to one another. Uh, they were small, and, and they were very, like, kind of public places. People would pop in unannounced. There were parents and grandparents and children and cousins and slaves in these house churches. And there would have been siblings in Christ from many other places who would have traveled to these neighborhoods to be a part of these communities. They would share meals together. And so Phoebe was likely hanging out in these houses with these folks, reading and performing this letter for others so they could hear these words from Paul. And so I want you all to think about it. When, when Phoebe's reading, maybe about a conflict that's happening, and she's talking about the Jewish people and, and something maybe that was going on there, she could look at the Jews in the room as she's reading that. When she's addressing a conflict where maybe people are instigating something, she could look right at those people who were causing the trouble as she's reading those particular lines. These are, she's in the room with these folks reading it to them. 
Romans, uh, I think is amazing, was heard for the first time from the voice of a woman. Paul's letters can be a little confusing, don't you think? Do you all ever have trouble reading Paul's letters? They're confusing now, and they were very confusing back then as well. Take 1 Corinthians, for example. 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote it, and people didn't really understand it in Corinth, and so he had to write 2 Corinthians, try to address some misunderstandings. Um, Paul's letters were not always understood back then. We read them now, and we're like, well, maybe they got it then. They didn't always get what Paul was saying back then as well. And so I imagine as Phoebe is reading Paul's letter, people would have questions about it. They may raise their hand and say, hey, Phoebe, can you go back and tell us what Paul meant by that particular thing you just said? Because I don't know what uh, you're talking about. Or when she's saying, talking about the weak and strong, like, Phoebe, who is Paul actually referring to? Who are the strong and who are the weak? And you can imagine in a small house church, Phoebe is not just going to ignore their questions. She's going to address those questions. She's going to be the one to answer them because nobody else has seen this letter except her. And so Phoebe There is a strong possibility she was the first interpreter of the book of Romans. And so for the biblical nerds out there, she would have been the first person to do biblical exegesis of the book of Romans. And this is significant because the book of Romans has been debated and analyzed for thousands of years. It is the longest letter of Paul. Countless books have been written on Romans. Churches have split over Romans. Lives have been blessed and condemned from Romans, and most of the debate has been done by men when the original reader and interpreter and carrier of the letter was a woman. Let's go a bit further. In Romans 16, Paul specifically mentions individuals by name. These are the people he wanted to call out and encourage and lift up. Now try to imagine how it might have felt in one of these house churches. He's reading through the letter. And, and he gets to a certain point at the end where he's speaking names. Now, I would have been listening. Is he going to say my name? You know, maybe Paul will say my name. And lo and behold, Paul is lifting up certain names. I'm sure those individuals would have been so thrilled that Paul, the leader of this early church, mentioned them by name. In this list, he mentions nine women. And for most of them, he doesn't just say their name, but he actually says something positive and encouraging about their work for the gospel. I just want to highlight two of them. The first he mentions is actually a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. Now, these are two of, most, of Paul's most trusted friends. You can read about them in Acts. They're mentioned in other places in the New Testament. And it's significant he mentions Priscilla's name first. And he does this in other places. In the ancient world, the man's name would most likely be mentioned first in any, any situation. And it's because like that's what they valued. The men would be listed first. Yet Paul says Priscilla's name first. It could be argued that this points out that she was the more prominent leader in the early church. Another couple Paul mentions is Andronicus and Junia. Now Jews, uh, these were Jews that he said were in prison with him at one point. He also describes them as being great among the apostles. So these two folks, he he includes them as people who were among this group called the apostles. So Paul referred to Junia, a woman, as an apostle. In more recent years, scholars have questioned whether Junia was indeed a woman. They claim that her name was in fact Junius, not Junia. 
Now, Junius would not be a woman because that is a male name, Junius. Apparently, there are men um, who think that a woman could not be an apostle, and so they had to do some research and figure out a way to prove that this woman was not termed an apostle. However, the research clearly shows that Junius was not a name that was used in that part of the world at that particular time. It's like a made-up name, basically. And the name, all the research shows, was Junia. And Junia is a woman, and Paul called her an apostle. Other women included Mary, Tryphena and Tryphosa, Persis, the mother of Rufus, Julia, and the sister of Nerus. You know, Paul is often used to justify discriminating against women in ministry. Yet Romans shows us that Paul had many women working alongside of him in ministry, providing leadership in the early church. As you may know, ancient Rome was steeped in patriarchy. Men were in charge. And the fact that women were providing so much of the leadership in the early church was truly revolutionary. The last thing I want to point out is that Paul lists 29 names at the end of Romans. As famous and passionate, as gifted that Paul was, he understood that it wasn't about him and that he didn't do ministry alone. Ministry was shared among a whole lot of people. In our highly individualistic um, culture where we value the Lone Ranger, we value the celebrity, um, we value people we think achieve things all on their own, we lift up individuals as heroes pretending as if they achieved all their greatness by themselves. It is all a myth. We are all connected and we truly cannot do anything alone. I remember when Tanya, a few years ago, during the pandemic, shared a reflection on Martin Luther King Day on our live stream, and she didn't really talk about Dr. King at all, and I thought that was surprising but refreshing, because she said she values Dr. King, but wanted instead at that point to lift up and talk about all the other people who were working tirelessly in the freedom movement, working in ways that were often unseen, yet were just as important as the work of their charismatic and gifted leader. We have been shaped, and we are being formed by people who have come before us and those people who are working alongside of us now. You know, the gospel truly is good news. The gospel says that we all need Jesus and that Jesus came not just for one group, not just for the wealthy or the pretty or the popular, but Jesus came for us all, inviting everyone to join his inclusive family where everyone has equal status in the eyes of God. I want to share uh, one of our values at Embrace is that church equals diverse family. Um, it's the only one that has a math equation in it, so that's a little weird, but uh, it's church equals diverse family, and we believe that Embrace is and should be a diverse family. And I want to read just what we say on our website about it because it really encompasses, I think, much of what Paul is getting at at the end of his letter. At Embrace, we all have biological families which we love and value. However, we recognize that when we give our lives to Jesus, we are born again into a new family, which we call the family of God. In Matthew twelve fifty, Jesus said, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. As family, we are deeply committed to each other at Embrace. Uh, we may be dysfunctional at times, but we love each other. As family, we stick together 
even when we disagree, make mistakes, and come from different places. Our family is inclusive, always welcoming newcomers as Jesus did. We cherish the diversity of our family, knowing that the gospel tears down walls and hierarchies of separation, oppression, and inequity. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.